We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Like I said at the beginning of the service, according to the Christian calendar, we're still in the season of Christmas, a 12-day long birthday party, and this is the 10th day. Now, Christmas, in case you haven't noticed, can get a little crazy. The spending frenzy, the mad rush to buy gifts. And, you know, sometimes if you're around Christians, you'll hear Christians say something like, we need to put Christ back into Christmas. It's kind of an antidote to this commercialization that has occurred. But the irony is, Um, In the midst of all of this commercialization, Jesus Christ has not been removed, right? I mean, every department store has this manger, doesn't it? With this gilt-edged Christ with a neon sign over him. Even Walmart sells, you know, blow-up nativities that people put in their front yards. It's in the midst of this overly commercialized um, time of the year, Christ has not been excluded. The problem in the commercialization of Christmas, is not the removal of Christ. The problem is exactly what Christ are we putting in the manger. And that's, that's what Matthew chapter 2 pushes in our face. When I hear Matthew 2 read, when I read it, it's like my children who don't realize that at my age you began to get, you know, farsighted and they put something right in your face to read it. And you're, you know, you're constantly pushing it back. You know, Matthew 2 pushes in our face exactly what Christ are we placing in the manger? Now, if you'll look with me at Matthew chapter 2, if you've got a Bible, you, you can find this part of the Bible. If not, there's some Bibles in the pews. And if you're the type that likes to just listen and follow along kind of audibly, then, then you're more than welcome to do that. Matthew chapter 2. When we look at Matthew's account of the visit of the Magi to Christ, the first thing that, that we see about this Christ in this manger is that he is the king. He is the king of every square inch of the cosmos. In other words, when Matthew presents to us this baby lying in a manger, it's not some cute, cuddly, another of the billions of babies that have been born. It is an entirely unique child. This child is God. So says Matthew. Look what the Magi say when they show up. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then when they find him down in verse 11, they give him these gifts. They give him these three gifts, gifts that in their culture are only presented in this manner to a king. And the point Matthew is presenting to us is that this baby lying in this manger is not simply a cute, harmless little, in the words of Ricky Bobby, eight pounds, six ounce infant in fleece diapers. He is the sole creator, God of the universe in flesh. So as we disentangle Christmas from the ravages of commercialization, we need to begin by listening honestly to what Scripture says, whether we agree with it or not. 
whether we buy it or not or believe it or not or have any confidence whatsoever in it or not, we need to at least allow it to say what it is saying. Now, not everyone believes that Jesus is the one and only true God. But this is exactly how Matthew is presenting him. This is who Matthew believes he is. When he says the king of the Jews, Matthew was a Jew. And the Jews are one of the great monotheistic religions. And he's saying he is God in the flesh. He is the God that we worship. And so he's making this radically exclusive claim that there is only one God. And this is that God come down in the flesh. He's referring back to the whole backstory of Judaism and saying this is the culmination of it all. This is the climax of it all. Now, now the Christian claim is that this child whom Herod is raging against, This child that Herod refuses to let reign in Israel. The irony of Matthew 2 is that in that moment, he is reigning everywhere. Herod has set his sights far too small. He is a much bigger threat than Herod can imagine. He is not simply a threat to the king of Israel. He's a threat to every king and would-be king this world would ever know. And in that moment, Matthew is saying he reigns. He is the one and only true God. And Matthew is saying this is the heart of Christianity. And if you come to see that Christ is the only true God, then like the Magi, you will come to worship him. You will worship Jesus Christ, not a vague, abstract God, not a faceless, generic, higher power. But if you come to see what the Magi see, you will not just gather on Sundays or whatever day you gather in your religious observance to worship a generic. You will worship Christ now. Like I said, I know not everybody believes this and not you, you don't have to believe this. You don't have to believe this to be a part of our church. You don't have to believe this to be in this room. But if you are struggling with doubts, whether there's a God or not, or whether Christ is God or not, then I want to say to you, don't back down. These are the most important struggles you will ever face in your whole life. Don't back off of them. Don't run from them. Face them head on. They are the most important questions. And the, and the thing about Herod is he recognizes it. He recognizes everything rides on this issue. And I want to say to you, if you're struggling in this area, if you're struggling, if God is God, if there is a God, and if Jesus is God, be as vigorous as Herod is in pursuing this question to the end of itself. Because any Christianity without faith in Christ as king is just a civic religion. Any any Christianity that loses the particularity of that claim is just a tool of society to prop up the power structures of society. Face your doubts. Now, I think we we need to be very careful here, though, because while there are some who do not believe that that God would actually come in the flesh and be this baby lying in a manger, and I've got to admit that's a very weird thing to believe. It's that's that's that ranks up there with science fiction. We should all admit that. There are some who struggle with that, and there are some who 
who believed that with a deep faith and a profound confidence. But I think all of us must guard at this moment against catching only half the fish, as they say. There's something else in this passage that Matthew is pointing out about this Christ in this manger. You see, Matthew is not only revealing that this baby in this manger, as weird as it may sound, he's not only saying that this is God, this is Christ the King, he's also showing us that there is something very surprising about this King. Look again at the first verse of Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, that's the first verse of Matthew 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, that was an obscure, insignificant place. If Jesus hadn't been born there, you would not have heard of it today. It It was a place that didn't even rank on the maps. In fact, when he was born there, the, relig- the religious and political leaders had to all get together and scratch their head and say, now, where, where is this place? So small. And now look at the very last verse of Matthew chapter 2, the last verse of the chapter. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, if you grew up in church or if you're familiar with scriptures, don't confuse this with the popular kind of thing in the Bible called a Nazarite. This is not that. It's a Nazarene. This is another insignificant, obscure place in Israel, Nazareth. In fact, this place is even more remote than Bethlehem. And to call someone a Nazarene was a slang, very derogatory term. The closest I can get to is if maybe if you called somebody a hick or a hillbilly or, or something like that, and you were being condescending in saying it, this was a pejorative term. The chapter begins with his birth in obscurity, and it ends with his childhood and him growing up a hick, a hillbilly, and in this obscure place. Let me show you one more thing. In verse 2, Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews. And then in verse 3, Herod is referred to as Herod the king. And in fact, one way you can interpret this whole chapter is a tale of two kings. The moment the two kings are mentioned together, there's conflict, right? Because there can never be two kings, right? We we all know that. Heads are going to roll, right? (laughs) Anytime that occurs. Especially if you're a maniacal madman like we know Herod to be from history. Here's what's interesting. After verse 2, Jesus is not referred to as the king anymore. Instead, he's referred to as the baby five times. In other words, Matthew is saying he is the king, but don't ever forget what kind of king he is. Matthew is deliberately juxtaposing these two images. He's saying he is no ordinary king. He is a lowly, meek, humble king. In contrast... To Herod, this raging bull. Now, this is a major theme throughout Matthew's biography of the life of Jesus. If you'll turn a few pages to the right to chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. This is the adult Christ. He's teaching. And look what he says about himself. He invites his followers, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. You ever called yourself lowly? 
Have you ever heard a king refer to themselves as lowly? Now jump to chapter 21, if, you, if you're following along. Chapter 21, verse 4. This is right at the end of Christ, his life. This is when he's riding in what, what, what we call the triumphal entry. He's riding into the capital city of Israel, just like, I mean, if you can imagine Napoleon riding in um, after he's won a great battle. This is the king riding into the capital city. But notice what it says he's riding. Say to the, to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. This is a huge theme for Matthew. We don't have time to go all through his gospel where he keeps juxtaposing these images that Jesus is king, but he's a backward king. He's riding a donkey, not a stallion. He's coming in not on the horse of a conqueror, but on a donkey, the beast of a servant. What, what is Matthew doing here? You see, he, I think he's saying to us over against the sentimentalized baby in the manger that our culture presents, Christianity claims the baby in the manger is a king. But over and against the triumphalistic king that Christians in America want, he says this king is lowly and meek and humble and obscure. See, I think Christians want to stand up to the world and say he's king. But Matthew has another punch coming. And it's to those of us who are used to winning battles. It's to those of us who are raised in a country that doesn't lose wars. It's to those of us who live on a side of the mountain where the winners get to move. He's saying this is a king, but he is a lowly, meek, humble king. Matthew had an agenda. He wasn't just writing bald history in some objectivistic fashion. When Matthew was recording the life of Jesus, it was with an agenda. He was writing this, this story of the life of Jesus anywhere from 50 to 80 years after the birth of Jesus. He'd been thinking about these things a long time, anywhere from 20 to 50 years after his death. And he's writing this gospel to a cluster of Christian communities that probably lived in modern-day Syria, and he's encouraging these early Christians to live by the conviction that since their Lord was born in obscurity, grew up in obscurity, carried out his entire ministry as a lowly, humble, meek servant of God, and went to his death in meekness, Matthew is encouraging these early Christians And through Matthew, God is calling us today to live the same life, to emulate that life. Through Matthew, God is telling us that if meekness was the form of life that Jesus led, it must be the form of life we live. Matthew is telling us, and through him, God, Pursue lowliness. Pursue meekness. Pursue servanthood. Pursue forgiveness. Pursue obscurity. Pursue it. Run to obscurity. 
run to meekness. This, this is really challenging. I, I told Janelle, I hate preaching on stuff that I'm really bad at. Because you know why? In all of us, and me probably much more than you, there is this little tyrant who loves power, who wants to dominate, to be superior, to control and to win. We feel like we're the only ones who have the truth. And so we interfere with the work of others. We take charge of things. And like Herod, we jealously, ravenously protect our position. Establish our authority. Hold on to our privileges. And when we do this, just like Herod, we reduce others to a function of carrying out our wishes and our ideas as if they're incapable of making judgments on their own. And like Herod, we only let other people have their own freedom when it doesn't challenge our authority, our position, our ideas. We want our ideas to be put into action right away. And as a result, other people become our project. And this church will become our project. If we treat it that way. (laughs) But sometimes, you know, like Herod, gathering the wise men together, ascertaining from them at what time. Oh, go find him for me so I may go and worship him. Sometimes we cloak. Our lust for power. In the religion of good intentions. But there is nothing more terrible than a tyrant using religion as his cover matter which century we live in. And this is hard for me. I constantly struggle with meekness. As a father, I am so quick to go beyond the proper power that I, that I have in the life of my children when I want them to turn out the way that I've envisioned them to turn out. When I want them to do in this moment exactly What my agenda wants. I'm so quick to ignore my children's freedom and their wishes. Think about this in terms of our church, of all things new. Jesus is the model for authority. On the night before Jesus died, you you know what he did? He washed the feet of his disciples like a common slave. And then he told his disciples that they should do likewise. And if they do, they'll be blessed. This is such a radically different way of exercising authority than we're accustomed to. See, Jesus leads by going lower than others. Not by rising above them. And we need the spirit of Jesus to teach us to be humble servants. Now look, very soon our church is going to determine elders. The group of people who will be the spiritual leaders of this church. And as we do that, it is essential that we understand the biblical picture of authority. All people with authority are servants before they're ever bosses. 
People who assume authority and responsibility in order to prove something or because they tend to be dominating and controlling or because they need to see themselves on top or they're looking for privilege or prestige, make no bones about it. Just like Herod, they will always exercise their authority in destructive ways. And again, leaders must want to be servants As we seek to determine the elders of our church, we must look for those who are seeking obscurity, who are pursuing meekness, who are pursuing lowliness. Now, some churches choose their leaders for their administrative ability or their stature in the community or their power. But in the manger, in the life of Christ, we see that leaders should be chosen because they put the interest of others above themselves. These are the kind of leaders that our church needs, even if they're shy or they lack certain abilities. Unity in a church, just like unity in any family unit, grows from the soil of humility. The Jesus in the manger, he is a lowly king. Embrace that Christ and you'll embrace Christmas. Pursue meekness, pursue lowliness, pursue obscurity. Now, I think a really important question at this point is how? How can I do that? Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Psalm 37. If you struggle with meekness, Psalm 37 is the quintessential part of Scripture that teaches you how to be meek. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Look, if you are afraid, it will drive you into either passivity or prideful assertion. Both of which are the opposite of meekness. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord. Now, I want you to notice in this psalm, what are all the verbs that we're commanded to do? And these are the verbs that add up to meekness. Trust and do good and dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. See, pursue meekness, pursue lowliness, pursue obscurity. Delight in God and he'll give you your desires. Don't pursue these things with a radical aggression. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will act. Who does the action in this psalm? God is the actor. My only actions are trusting and delighting. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Herod was trying to bring forth his righteousness, his own self. Be still before the Lord. That's lowliness. That's meekness. That's obscurity. It's stillness. It's trusting in God. Wait patiently for the Lord. Patient waiting. That's what meek people do. Instead of me trying to change my children constantly and at every turn the other day, I said to Janelle, I've got to stop scolding our children. And she said, you know what I do, Aubrey? I pray. And it was like this light switched on in that moment. I can scold them or I can ask the Lord to fix them. 
That's what he's saying. Listen, the opposite of meekness is not waiting. Wait patiently for the Lord. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the evil man who carries out his device. Refrain from anger. Listen, if you struggle with anger, you're not a meek person. Anger is on the opposite side of the scales from meekness. Refrain from it. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, for the evildoers will be cut off. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. Now here, we're, I wish we could go through the whole psalm, but maybe you need to read it through on your time. But let me tell you, in Matthew chapter 5, just three chapters after what we read in Matthew 2, Jesus is teaching his most famous sermon ever. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And you know what he says? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. And let me tell you, meekness boils down to that. It boils down to, do you believe God that the way to get what you want is to patiently wait and let him do it or to grab it yourself? Do you really believe the meek will inherit the land? It takes faith to believe that. (laughs) Because everything staring us in the face says that's not true. And when you get a job, it's not the meek who are going to get advanced. See, this is where push comes to shove, and this is where... See, this is the sucker punch that follows Christ as king. It's Christ as a lowly king. Do you, do you really believe that the way God set about saving the world is the way he wants you to live your life? And do you believe it's going to work? Well, look, I wish we could keep going through Psalm 37. It just keeps playing off. Fear versus meekness. Anger versus meekness. Waiting versus getting it yourself. Pursue meekness pursue lowliness pursue obscurity this is one of matthew's the chapter of the bible we started out in this is one of his most distinctive features he juxtaposes two images of jesus the image of jesus in his first advent when he came in the manger but then matthew always gets around to talking about what it'll be like when jesus comes again The first Jesus, Matthew, says over and over and over, I am lowly, I am gentle, I am meek, I am obscure. But then he says, when Christ comes back again, it will not be in obscurity. He will come riding, not on a donkey, but on the clouds. He will not come in lowliness, but he will come in glory. He will not come to be judged, but he will come to judge. And it all boils down to that for a Christian. Do you believe that or not? If you really believe he's coming back and when he does, those who've been treated unjustly, those who've been sinned against and harmed and hurt, they will be vindicated. If you believe that, then you can be meek. Because in that moment, when you're tempted with the choice of dominating someone or waiting patiently, if you believe that when God comes back, he will win the day, it will not be like a football game. When God shows up on the field, the other team will crumble. And if we believe that, we can seek obscurity. But if we don't believe that, then we better change the world ourselves. Because that's the only hope. The humility of the earthly life of Jesus is our pattern because we believe that he's coming back. And when he does, his kingdom 
will come. This is what Sandy read to us out of Isaiah 60. When all the nations bring their greatest gifts to the king. This is what Jesus calls us to in Matthew 5. You know, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What is the path to seeing God's kingdom come here over the mountain in in Alabama and in the United States and in this world today? It's obscurity and meekness and lowliness. There's a paradox, isn't there? Because if you're a Christian, you are shattered over the brokenness of this world and you want to do something about it. So how do we live with that burden without becoming activist? We trust that God will raise us up when he wants to raise us up. We trust like Psalm 37, if we had time to read it all, it says he will exalt us when he is ready. We seek lowliness. We pursue humility. We pursue meekness. And he establishes when he's ready. See, Matthew chapter 2 shows us an image of the raging, maniacal Herod. Slaughtering the innocents. And in the face of that, we see in Matthew 2 that evil is powerless when it faces humility. That's Christ in a manger. That's a madman tyrant slaughtering children. And it shames us if we think we have to win in order to display the kingdom of God on this earth. No, Matthew 2 says to us, the kingdom of God shines forth in powerlessness. We do not need power, cultural power or any other kind of power. We do not need it to show the goodness of God. And so in the face of hostility and abuse, we choose forgiveness because that's the way Christ lived. And we trust that when he returns, he will vindicate the righteous. And when we are tempted to dominate, we choose servanthood. As counterintuitive as it may be, because we look with the eyes of faith. Blessed are the meek. Look in the manger. That is a strange way to save the world. Do you believe it? Then be a servant. Offer forgiveness. And seek obscurity. Let's pray.